And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Of all the White House correspondents who cover Donald Trump, few have known him longer than Jonathan Carl of ABC. Carl, then a young reporter for the New York Post, first met Trump in the early 90s, when the future president was a sometime source, plugging himself and his properties. Now Carl's written a book called Front Row at the Trump Show, giving us a bird's eye view of the Trump years in Washington. I sat down with him Friday to talk about the upcoming Republican convention, the POTUS's state of mind, headed into the final stretch, and Carl's own journey in life and journalism. Jonathan Carl, it's really good to see you. We're right in the middle of a frantic couple of weeks of conventions, and we're halfway through. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm wondering what your impression was of the Democratic, virtual Democratic convention, and what you think the man you cover was thinking, uh, because he undoubtedly was watching. I don't think there's any question of that, is there? There's no question that that he was watching. Uh, I mean, you you saw it. Uh, most obviously, when Obama was speaking, he couldn't yeah. he couldn't stop himself. Uh, yes, his cat blocks uh, were frozen. Yes, <laughs> the cat blocks were frozen. Uh, I thought it was fascinating. I you know I I think that one thing here is the Democrats uh, have known for months, months and months that they were almost certainly going to have a virtual convention, and they've clearly been planning. Um, yeah, and 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 it was it was really a a, a technical feat. Um, you know there were there were there were a few goofy moments i suppose but uh but but there were i thought it was really fewer than you'd expect though many many fewer than you would expect and um i i i thought that the the roll call was just yeah. uh, an unbelievable highlight because we've all been stuck in our you know at <laughs> yeah. home and then we yeah. got to see the country yeah. <laughs> it was really uh no um, i thought I, that was brilliant that was really uh, an innovation you know my I've been involved in 11 of these as a journalist or a strategist, and I helped plan a couple of them. But uh, I have to say, in many ways, this was the best because uh, it was better television. It was easier to watch. You could bring people in from all over the country. It felt more inclusive. Uh, and the speeches were actually better. You know, there was this all this concern that if you gave speeches, you know, that where there was no crowd, that it would be a downer. But what it, what it created was more intimacy uh, and actually made these speeches maybe more impactful than had they been the normal Roman Colosseum kind of deal. Uh, although I don't think that's the way the president views it, right? He, he likes the Roman Colosseum. Yeah, he 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 wants that, but I, you know, but I think particularly uh, the two Obama speeches and Joe Biden. Like, I've been covering Joe Biden for a long, long time. I, I have I have sat through more Joe Biden speeches than I can than, than I can care to count. This was, I believe, by far the best speech that I have ever seen him give. Yeah, uh, yeah. focused. Uh, his, his, the way it was crafted, the way it was delivered. Um, yeah. the, the substance of what he had to say, absolutely. But no, I mean, I think the main thing Donald Trump thought when he was watching all this is, you know, this. I think he, I think he, he said to himself, it was boring. That's what he, what he has to tell yeah. himself. And then I'm going to have my people, and it's going to be me. And I think we're going to see Donald Trump every single night of their convention. Uh, he, they're they're going to find a way to, uh, you know, to to inject the idea of the crowds. And my God, could you ever think we would have thought we'd see a, a, a convention speech or an acceptance speech at the White House? Right. I mean, no. all the hand wringing that, that now that, is that, the plan that, is the plan to uh, bring crowds in uh, to the White House yes. grounds to hear him speak. Yes, and 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 how they're going to do that? The details we don't know yet, but but he has made it clear he will he will bring people, and I assume he'll bring people into the South Lawn. Uh, in some way, uh, as you know, social distancing is not a, 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 a not, high not a priority. priority. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I, you know, uh, on the Biden speech, I agree with you that it was his best in part because it seemed very organic and authentic. He, he owned those words. It didn't look like a guy reading a speech off of a no. teleprompter. Um, 
You know, I'm curious about uh, Trump, and we'll know the answer. Uh, you know, the, I think we're, this pod- podcast will go up Monday, and by Thursday we'll know the answer. But uh, you know, he's not particularly good off a prompter. Uh, he's mostly most of his action comes in those ad libbed moments, sometimes crazy, sometimes provocative. But to get the crowd rise comes a lot from stuff that's not on the prompter. Uh, like, what do you anticipate as a speech? I mean, is he going to do one of those sort of uh, stand-up things, or is he going to have a text? And Because Biden was like making a presidential address to the nation. That's what it was like. Trump is at his uh, worst when he is doing a, a, a telegraph speech without, I mean, a, a teleprompter speech without an audience. It's awkward. It's not natural for him. He can pull off a teleprompter speech with an audience. Uh, we, we saw that in his first address to a joint session of Congress. Um, but I, I expect that this will be a this will be a crafted speech. This will be this will be you know. I mean, if you, you just go back to his speech, by the way, which is fascinating to go back to look at his his speech four years ago in Cleveland, which was a law and order speech that was overwhelmingly. Um, the, the theme of that speech, that, that, that he will restore law and order, um, that uh, essentially it is the responsibility of the Democrats, of, 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 of Obama uh, for these past years that we see lawlessness on our streets. And you know, now, of course, he's been president for four years and he's going to say essentially the same thing. Yeah, that seems to be an integral part of his strategy to get so some of those suburban voters back. Uh, that he's lost, and he's consolidated uh, in the last couple of weeks marginally, but uh, some of those uh, non-college whites who were so much core to his base, and I have to believe that stuff has helped, whether it gets him to where he needs to go. What is your sense of how his team views the situation they're in? Because he is in the worst position of any incumbent since George H.W. Bush in 1992, going into his own convention. Uh, and he's in the midst of a pandemic, even if he doesn't want to acknowledge it, uh, that everybody is experiencing. By the time, you know, by the time they, they step on that debate stage, it could be 200,000 people have, uh, will have died in this country from COVID. I mean, do you sense from, obviously, this is a leaky bunch of folks. Mm-hmm. Do they know that they're in a jam here? They do. There's a fair amount of denial, but but they know they're in a jam now. In the last over the last few days, uh, they are seeing in their own polling uh, what you've seen some evidence of in, in the public polling, uh, uh, some tightening. Now, I, I Donald Trump doesn't take to uh, to hearing any kind of uh, bad news well. I mean, I, you, you probably remember when George uh, when, when George Stephanopoulos was riding in the limo with him uh, uh, last last summer and made reference to his own internal polling showing he's in trouble in the battleground states. And he's like, wait, what do you mean? What do you mean? Get Brad on the phone. And he actually got, he actually called up Brad Parscale uh, to say, what's he talking about? Our polls show we're doing great. So I, I think there's a lot of pressure in terms of his, uh, his polling operation to give him good news. Yeah. And they're seeing a little bit of good news in their own polling. I, I, I think there's very little evidence of that in, in, in the public polling. And I think, and, and and they acknowledge they've got a they've got an uphill battle here. But yeah. look, he's done. I thought what was striking about Biden is he explicitly said, "I am taking the Democrat. I'm going to be a Democratic candidate, but I am going to be an American president. Uh, I am going to serve those who supported me and those who didn't support me." And I, I've covered every day of this administration, and I have seen precious few moments where Donald Trump has done anything to try to reach out to a single person uh, who did not support him the first time around. There have been a couple of moments, I'm not saying they're non-existent, but he's done almost nothing uh, to, to, to reach out to those who didn't already support him. It's all about energizing uh, his base. And I think objectively, if you look at the, if you look at the, literally look at the numbers, his base is smaller now relative to the base of of, of his opponent than, than it was four years ago. You know, it was a different race four years ago. He was the insurgent, 
Uh, Hillary Clinton had significant negatives. And one of the things that's been interesting to watch here is uh, them casting about to try and find a, a way to characterize Biden. And one of the problems I think Biden created for them with this convention is he, you know, he rooted himself in the kind of heartland the, of middle America, uh, you know, faith, family, military family, working class family. Uh, you know, it's very hard. And this is why I think that Trump went to such extremes to try and stop Biden from becoming the nominee. I mean, the impeachment really flowed from his desperation to slow Biden down. Uh, Biden is, is culturally uh, inconvenient for Trump. He's not a great target in the way that Hillary was in 2016. And so, you know, I think that's a problem for him. And he, he knows it. I mean, he clearly knows that. So what he what he will try to do, and, and and I think this is the contrast they'll try to do with their convention, but but of course they haven't had the time to plan for this because it didn't dawn on them that they would have a virtual convention until a few weeks ago. Yes, uh, they they were they were still insisting they were going to do something in Jacksonville. Um, but I, I think that the the contrast that, that he's going to try to do is one of energy uh and 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 people you know so the, he we saw him you know come around to i mean he did, he did more campaign related travel during the democratic convention than he had done you know since the shutdown uh of, of the country um and and i so i i think that he's going to try to inject you know the the, the energy of the crowd the, the feel that he's going to be out there he's and he'll he'll work hard i mean look what he cares he enjoys uh, campaigning, I, I believe, a hell of a lot more than he enjoys governing. Yeah. Um, I mean, he held his first re-election rally before, you know, during the transition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, he 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 needs it. He feeds off it. And I think that's the contrast uh, that, that, that he will try to do. But Biden is very inconvenient uh, to him. And he hasn't figured out quite how to take it to Biden. Is it is it Sleepy Joe? Is it a suggestion that he's you know, somehow uh, too old and is losing it? Uh, yeah. Is it the is it the where's Hunter stuff? I mean, none of it's really landed. And, and when you go out and you see these groups of Trump supporters, you don't see, you don't see, you know, you look at the, the, the paraphernalia they have. They, they're, they're still trotting around with, you know, lock her up and Hillary <laughs> uh, and, you know, all, all the all the kind of stuff against Hillary Clinton. Uh, they, they, you don't really see much about, about Biden. Biden yeah. You know? Yeah, no, I think, the, and on this sort of he's addled, he's senile thing, that was another reason why that speech was so important last night, because Biden looked in the moment, he looked energetic, and that was really, really important for him. The next big test will be that debate on September 29th, and uh, it may be the most important date in the whole election calendar, because if Joe Biden, the Joe Biden that we saw last night uh, shows up on the stage uh, on September 29th, it's a big problem for Trump because Trump has so lowered expectations for Biden that if Biden gets up there and is coherent and energetic, um, you know, uh, I recall to 1980 when Ronald Reagan stepped on a debate stage with Jimmy Carter and when he proved himself to be genial and warm and not the crazy bomb thrower that people feared the race was over. So it'll be interesting to watch. Hey, what also is interesting is your story. I want to talk a little bit about your journey and how you got to be the uh, uh, the uh, the Trump uh, in interpreter in Washington, the, tr the Trump, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the savant on Trump. And, and I want to talk about your uh, your book, The Front Row and the, at the Trump Show. But I, first, I want to talk about you and how you actually came to uh, this point. Uh, I know you were born in, in Connecticut. Uh, your, your, uh, your dad, uh, uh, Wayne, w ran a family-owned auto part auto shop. Body shop. Auto yep. body Carl's shop. Carl's auto body. Yep. And um, was a public servant himself, right? The head of the volunteer fire department for decades and decades and decades. Mm -hmm. um, it... Uh, Tell me about him and and his influence. I want to talk about your mom and your stepdad. 
Yeah, my my dad was, uh, you know, uh, he was a classic kind of community blue collar guy. I mean, he was he was active in the the Qantas Club, the Red Cross, the uh, you know, obviously t- ten years as the uh, as, as the the chief of the, the Roten Heights uh, Volunteer Fire Department. Um, he, uh, you know, never went to college. He, um, was never particularly into national politics, uh, that, that he, we never really even talked about, but he was very into local politics, uh, uh always very active, you know, the, the, the selectman races, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and he, uh, but, but once I went in this direction, I mean, he, he's the guy he, he watched and read everything I did. I first my first job as a, a first daily reporting job um, was with uh, the New York Post, and my dad mm-hmm. was a lifelong Daily News guy, you know. Um, and and he switched immediately to the to the Post and and uh, and read everything I did. I eventually ended up working at CNN for eight years, and you know, suddenly he was watching cable television, <laughs> you know. And <laughs> I saw a story about your dad that uh, that was really interesting to me that. When when the homeowners association told him that he couldn't install a flagpole outside of his home in in Florida, he uh, he he lost his he, he he tried to he sued I guess he lost and he moved. Yeah, yeah, he sold his house and moved to another place where he could have a flagpole and and and, and that's that's the place he lived in, until he. Uh, you know, until he died, and and um, uh, I mean, it was. I remember when as I was packing up his house, getting all this, one of the last thing was you know, putting away the flag and looking at that flagpole. He had it installed uh, when when he moved to the new place, and he didn't. He sure as hell didn't buy the new house until he got a you know a commitment that that homeowners association was going to allow him to install a flag. But he's a guy he never missed a parade. You know, I mean, he 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 you know Memorial Day parade, a uh, a Fourth of July parade. Um, he was, he was a flag guy. He was a, he was the kind of symbolism of, 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 of America guy. Again, not, not, not big national politics. Would um, he have been a Trump guy? Uh, you know, he, he was, a, he, it was, it was interesting. Um, he was a lifelong Republican and, uh, he was around for the, uh, for, for the Republican, you know, for the primary and, and, and he, and he was, he was, he was sick. He was around through the election. Um, but he was a, he liked Jeb Bush mm-hmm. until, um, I did an interview with Jeb Bush in New Hampshire when, when Bush's, um, campaign was just tanking. Um, he was like, at, you know, 5% in the polls and, uh, and just, just on the verge of dropping out. And, um, it was a pretty contentious interview. Um, and at one point I, you know, I asked Jeb Bush about this attack his campaign was doing on on Marco Rubio, a pretty vicious attack, and he said he didn't know anything about it. I don't know. And he's like, "Well, I've got it right here. Take a look." And he's like, "Oh, I don't know." And he, I don't, don't see it. Here it is. And and he took the paper out of my hand. He looked at it for a second, and then he threw it back at me. And my dad was so offended that <laughs> he was like, "That's it. Jeb Bush is dead to me." Uh-huh. And and he really didn't like Trump from the from New York. But then once Trump became uh, the, the nominee, um, you know, he, 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 he was in, I mean, he uh-huh. was, uh, he, he, he didn't, he didn't like the Clintons and, and he was on board and I would have to try to remind him what he, what he had said about Donald Trump over the years, but, but it, all that didn't matter anymore. And, uh, and, and, and he was in. Now your, your, your mom, uh, Audrey, you, you, you were one of four boys, your, your yep. mom, Audrey, your your parents split up and she remarried. I'm interested in this this part of your life where you end up in South Dakota, uh, and it all has to do with Mount Rushmore. Uh, so tell me about your mom and tell me about that and your your yeah, stepdad, who seemed like a pretty colorful character. It's a great story, and my and my stepdad is like the mirror image of of my father. They're they're so different in every possible way. Although although interesting, neither one of them went to college. Um, my 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 dad remarried um, uh, to uh, his name was Howard Howard Schaff, and um, he he was a uh, he had been a taxi driver in Brooklyn grew up in Brooklyn he he served in the Air Force in, in the Korean War, um, and at this point he was out you know in Connecticut running a um, a factory that made bras I mean you can't really make it up but <laughs> but he but but he. Um, uh, his international fabric molders was the name of the company IFM 
<laughs> and but but he was a he was an amateur writer and he had written six novels and you know never got even published but he's like he was one of the smartest guys that that i knew and we went in the in the van uh an old chevy van with my my grandmother my mom's mom and drove across country one summer when i was in you know right before i went to fifth grade uh, into fifth grade and and we stopped uh in south dakota and visited mount rushmore and he was fascinated about Mount Rushmore as a sculpture. You know, there was all this stuff at the mountain about the, the presidents and the shrine of democracy and all that. But he wanted to know how do they do it? Who was the sculptor? Who worked on the mountain? And there was very little about that at the time at Mount Rushmore. So he started asking questions. And and when, after we got home, they got on this idea of trying to track down all of the people who had worked on the construction of Mount Rushmore. The <laughs> sculptor, Goodson Borglum, had, you know, died in 1941, but, but there were some 300 people that, that carried out the work on the mountain, all miners mostly, um, and about uh, half of them were, were, were still alive. But you know, this is pre-Google. There's no database of all these guys. So they put out an advertisement, bought an advertisement in the Rapid City Journal and and got a hold of of one of these guys and uh uh we 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 headed out and talked to him and he but, somehow but you like it you didn't just head out you you actually moved there oh oh I, and, and and somehow they they wrote to the university of south dakota in vermilion and got them to underwrite you know i mean i'm sure they got like i'm sure there was very little money involved here but but to, to the idea of doing an oral history of going around and interviewing all of these people who worked on mount rushmore you know all actually them, a great idea Great freaking idea! So, so we moved out. We we moved. Uh, it was the it, it, October first. I'll remember the date because that's the because we we moved out there. I, I had started school in Connecticut, and suddenly I was ripped up and going to like a little school in Hill City, South Dakota. For uh, reasons I remember, you probably didn't understand. Huh? I remembered. I remember the date, October first, because they they had they had a a snowstorm that brought nearly two feet of snow, and I was like, "What am I doing here?" <laughs> but but we moved into the Circle S Motel. Uh, which was a little motel um, uh, on the outskirts of, of Hill City. Now, Hill City at that point was a, a, a town that had 350 people. <laughs> so, so this was, you know, out of town about a mile or two, uh, Circle S, and we, and we had two adjoining motel rooms, you know, like the motels that you drive in. And a little, little, How long little, did you live in the motel? Uh, we lived in the motel for, uh, uh, for, for most of that school year. Um, oh um, and, um, it was, <laughs> and, and I, my, my, I've got a, I got a buddy that also lived in, in a little cottage by the hotel, uh, Todd Cerdez, who remains like one of my, one of my best, you know, one of my best buddies to, to this day. And it was a total, it was a cultural clash. I mean, I'd been living in Darien, Connecticut, yeah. you know, on the, just outside of New York city. And suddenly sort of I was quintessential New know, York bedroom community. Totally, you know, bedroom community for New York, and uh, and and we were out there, and it was, and and I I had this entirely new experience, and they we and we ended up traveling around the country uh, every time they got a lead on another person who had worked on Mount Rushmore. So we went, and you and, sat in on these interviews, huh? Yes, I sat in on these interviews, and um, eventually. They ended up uh, consulting. There was a museum in the town of Keystone at the base of Mount Rushmore. And they ended up consulting that and ended up uh, running that museum uh, for, for several years and then writing a book on the guy who carved Mount Rushmore. Um, and, um, you know, I, I went around with, uh, you know, I was there for, for much of that research and, uh, and those interviews. Is, is that where your journalistic roots began? I I, I, a huge part of it. I mean, I was already a bit of a, of a geek on this stuff and, um, you know, reading the, you know, when we were in Connecticut, I, I actually, you know, sought out the New York times, uh, op-ed page. I remember reading, you know, uh, you know, tracking, uh, the, uh, the arms control, you know, the, in, my, in elementary school, tracking the, the arms control negotiations. Yeah, that is pretty geeky. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, of course, we couldn't get the New York Times in South Dakota, so it's, um, yeah, you know, the Rapid City uh, paper wasn't covering arms control. No, well, you know, a bit. I, I they, they did have some <laughs> columns. I remember. I think they had like George Will's column was uh, was, was in the yeah. Rapid City Journal, and uh, and is uh, that where you others. did you live out there for the rest of your school years, or I, I I bounced back and forth between there, but mostly South Dakota from fifth grade until um, until eighth grade, right? 
getting ready to go into high school. And um, my parents made a decision that uh, I really should go to go to high school back in uh, in Connecticut because, you know, God bless Hill City High School, which Hill City High School, by the way, is K through 12. So mm-hmm. it's all it's all one, well, you know, one building. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a pretty big because people they bus in people from 20, 25 miles out. So all the little towns uh, go to that little regional regional school. But there was no foreign language. There was no advanced math. There uh-huh. was, you know, it was, you know, you were in the class. My class had about 23 people. Everybody was in the same uh-huh. the same classes, you know. Yeah. So so I, I ended up coming back to Connecticut and spending my summers in South Dakota. And, and, and went to college, Vassar College. And that is where you, uh, in, in high school and college, is where you actually started practicing journalism? I mean, I, I started my own, when I, in, back in Connecticut, I started my own newspaper um, in my senior year in high school. Oh, yeah, which, I read that. Yeah. yeah. This, so, which this, I still think was the highlight of my journalism career because it was, it was a hell of a lot of fun and more popular than the official uh, high school paper. So we, This uh, was <laughs> done because you weren't elected editor of the... <laughs> Yes. At the, yeah. Of the school newspaper, right? So you decided to go into competition with it. <laughs> Went into competition and just just kind of tried to bury him. But uh, but it was <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the 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 school newspaper was put out by the um, the journalism class. There was a journalism class, um, and uh, so everybody working on the paper got credit and everything else. So what I did is I realized like some of the best writers in in my high school didn't weren't in the journalism class. So we just like. It was all the outsiders, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but but then I, I you know I ended up uh, eventually having an internship at National Journal when I was at Vassar. Uh, that was my first kind of DC thing, and and wrote actually you know wrote for that that magazine, which as you remember was kind of a big deal back then. And, yeah. And the Almanac of American Politics was put out by by them. Right. And, um, so that was my real you know I had a summer of like summer of 1988, just uh, or was it 89, something like that. Uh, totally immersed in, in, in Washington and fascinated by everything about it, and I knew I wanted to be back. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. And then you work for the New Republic. Spent a year uh, for the New Republic. Another venerable magazine. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not quite the magazine it, it, it was, but back then, um, Rick Hertzberg, who I know you yeah, know, uh, yeah. former Carter speechwriter, was the editor. Uh, Andrew Sullivan was the deputy editor. Mike Kinsley uh, was yeah, there. Yeah, no, quite uh, an august group. Yeah. Sid Blumenthal, Fred Barnes. And, and I got to sit in on these editorial meetings of people that I had been reading and in, in awe of for years. And you know, and they encouraged us to jump in, and um, it was it so. Was, how you get? How awesome. do you get from there to the to the ultimate tabloid, uh, the New York <laughs> Post? Well, I, th- there was a stop in between, which was Freedom House, um, a uh, which was a, uh, a it is a human rights organization uh-huh. in in New York, and I got a job there basically as editing their publications and uh-huh. um and and i and, and there's a little there's a i mean there's a, it's a complicated story but I, I was also in in the interim um became a little bit of a generational revolutionary and uh and and crafted a thing called the third millennium declaration which was my attempt with douglas kennedy uh bobby kennedy's youngest son to craft our generation's uh answer to the port huron statement which was uh-huh Students for a Democratic Society, and uh, and and I was able to do that from my perch at Freedom House and do other writing. But I really wanted to be a reporter, and it was hard to get a job as a you know a daily job as a reporter. There was no, you know, there were no online publications. There was no Politico. There was no. So I, um, you know, had a Douglas actually went first, and you know got a job working at uh, at at the New York Post, and kind of dragged me along, and I. I spent two years uh, at the Post, which was just a blast. Yeah, including covering uh, City Hall there. Rudy Giuliani was the mayor at the time. Tell me about that. Tell me uh, what Rudy was like then and and what you see today. I mean, first of all, where is Rudy? I have, Nobody's really... <laughs> heard from him that's, lately that's like that's a good where's rudy i mean they should make up signs that say that <laughs> so i started at the post and the very next day rudy giuliani was inaugurated as as mayor for the first time and it was a uh it was a 
it was a really tense time in um, in New York. There was a lot of unrest. Um, yeah. uh, there was a lot of it was crime. Like crime. Yes. I mean, it was it was a, it was a tough time. And he came in with you know William Bratton as his uh, as his police chief and um, and and was going to change all that. And he was he was you know the whole bro- broken windows theory of you know yeah. prosecute small crimes. I remember at one point. Um, Police were in pursuit of somebody who holed up in the uh, the Nation of Islam's uh, mosque, and and you know Giuliani had him go in and, and you know uh, raid the mosque and, and and make the arrest. And it, I mean, if you felt like there were going to be riots in New York, it was very tense. Uh, but you know, Giuliani was um, he was a he was obviously a real force. Uh, he was a controversial figure. But as things got better in New York, and they did, even in my two years at at, at the Post, he was uh, he was a pretty popular Republican, and I and I remember when Mario Cuomo was running for his third term, um, trying to court uh, uh, Giuliani's endorsement, and he got yeah. it, he yes. got it. So so yes. Giuliani, the Republican mayor, uh, endorsed the Democratic governor. You know, poor George Pataki, who was the the Republican, was kind of left. Uh, on the outside. And, and I'll tell you, David, I made my first appearance ever on CNN uh, that day. I, I, cause I'd, I'd, I'd reported the story for the New York Post and Judy Woodruff uh, had me on Inside Politics. And I, I couldn't say no to the invitation to appear on CNN. I mean, but it was such a busy day. I had a huge deadline. And I, so I jammed the story out and I ran to that old CNN uh, bureau uh, by, um, time, by um, uh, Penn Station and no time for makeup. I looked like crap. Uh, they threw me right into the studio. I later learned that the Chiron had both my first name and my last name spelled wrong. <laughs> and 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 at the end of the interview, Judy asked me, uh, "So what's going to happen there in, in New York?" This is 1994, and I said, "Well, you know, after this, this uh, it sure looks bad for the Republicans." <laughs> yeah. Of course, of course, Pataki won. Uh, yeah. So this, what the lesson here is: sometimes it's good when they misspell your name. Yes. Uh, yeah. Right. That won't show up on Nexus. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you also covered that. First of all, we should note it was good politics for Rudy in a democratic city to uh, to show that sort of bipartisanship, probably. But. Um, Cuomo, uh, another sort of gigantic personality in American politics, um, you, you covered his last campaign. What were your impressions of him? He was, and I, I, I got to go back and forth between Pataki and and Mario Cuomo, and what what I I learned so much from Cuomo because the the post ended up in in the home stretch making me their you know their their reporter on Cuomo, so I went everywhere with him. And you know, rode along in the car with him for interviews, and it was it was always fascinating. I always learned something. He yeah. uh, he was professorial, he was philosophical, um, but I also noticed the contrast. Uh, if you know, Pataki would come out, talk to the reporters for about five minutes, answer a few questions, and say he wanted to bring the death penalty back and cut taxes, and and then he would leave no matter what the questions were, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And Cuomo would you know hold these colloquies with yeah. know, <laughs> with reporters, and um, you know had a harder time as a result uh, uh, to get his message out. But he was a hell of a lot more interesting to cover. Yeah, I mean, he was really one of the fascinating figures in American politics, uh, larger than life uh, figure. Absolutely. It'd be a mystery. It's always going to be something of a mystery as to why he never, you know, he had his plane on the runway in 1992 uh, for when it looked like he had a good chance to be the Democratic nominee. Why didn't he run and why didn't he accept Bill Clinton's offer to put him on the Supreme Court? Yeah, Uh, it's interesting. I I talked to Chris Cuomo about this and um, and I've talked to others. And, you know, there was this uh, this doubt, you know, about worthiness. And, uh, you know, he was a very introspective guy. And Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, the other uh, larger than life figure you met when you were at the New York Post was Donald Trump. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i still i still can't believe it i still can't believe it <laughs> what tell me about your first encounter with trump you were going over there to chase a, a michael jackson uh, uh yeah 
Lisa Marie Presley's story, and you ended up with Donald Trump. You know, I was a, an aspiring political reporter, so I didn't really care when Michael Jackson, it was learned, secretly married Lisa Marie Presley. I mean, it wasn't really my thing. I didn't really care about Donald Trump. Um, but I was working for the New York Post, and I also wanted to get in the newspaper the next day. <laughs> so uh, I was actually at City Hall and um, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the basement, the annex, uh, room, room nine is the main, is yeah, the main sure. press room upstairs. Famously, a, yeah. Yeah, there's, a, there's an annex downstairs for the ju- more junior people like me. And I, sh- I sure as hell wasn't going to get a story in about, about Giuliani that day. So I, I saw this news break and I just on a total whim dialed oh, – oh, it, the, the key thing is that Lisa Marie and Michael were – who had not been seen in public yet uh, together – were staying at Trump Tower, it was reported. So there was a huge crush of paparazzi and television crews uh, and everything else surrounding Trump Tower, hoping to get a glimpse of these two. I mean, Michael Jackson was at the absolute peak of his popularity yeah, right. at this point. And, um, you know, they, they eventually had a police cordon that pushed the, um, the crowd across the street. So I called up the Trump organization. I didn't have the number, but I, I looked it up and um, I, I called the Trump organization and asked to speak to Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, and that's, and that's, I was putting that's 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 <laughs> such a good news newspaper. Yeah. I mean, I, I live yeah. these kinds of things myself yeah. as a young reporter. I mean, the yeah. things that you do yeah. to try and get in the damn newspaper. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, there was another time where I called Hank Aaron out of the blue for a story. And, <laughs> and, and to my total shock, he called me back. It was like, but, um, but I um, uh, got through to Norma Federer, who was his gatekeeper for years. I mean, uh-huh. uh, just a real huge figure. I mean, you know, practically helped raise the, raised his kids uh, in addition to keeping his business in line. She died uh, several years ago, but, but she was, she was the old, she was the gatekeeper and she's like, and she's gruff. What do you want to talk to him about? And I say, well, I want to, I want to ask about why the most uh, famous newlyweds on the planet would want to have their honeymoon at Trump tower. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that was a very smart way to phrase it. Yeah. <laughs> He called me back, like I mean, within an hour, and I was and said, "Come on up now." I grabbed a photographer, um, uh, a post photographer, and we went up and we spent an hour running around Trump Tower. He introduced me to Michael's bodyguard, showed me where they were staying. I didn't get to meet Michael at last, but uh, but told me all the great details. All you know, uh, he was a source with the Trump Organization was the <laughs> uh, was the attribution at, at the time. And, um, you know, the way they got in and out in the basement without being seen outside and this is their car they're using and, um, and, and this is why Trump Tower is so great. And one, one of the funny things is he, he showed me, um, he wanted me to know all the celebrities that lived in Trump Tower. It's like Sophia Loren is over here. Andrew Lloyd Webber is over here. The British Royal family owns this. The Saudis have this. And, and and on and on and on, and he showed me and told me what stories, what floor they were on, and the post printed a graphic inside of Trump Tower with arrows pointing to where all these celebrities <laughs> had their their very private, you know, um, <laughs> places on Trump Tower. So let me ask you a question, uh, because you know he famously called people uh, under aliases and yeah. offered himself as his own press agent and so on. How how much of a source is Donald Trump? He clearly was then. Is he still today? I mean, he he he. I, I my sense is it's a little bit less uh, as things got as things have gotten tense. But 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 th- this was still happening um, as he got into the White House. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How and, how? Go ahead. I'm sorry. And and you know he he loves to um, to beat up on my former. Um, you know, Maggie Haberman also worked yes. at the New York Post. Uh, actually, started working there right after I left, and says that she used to see mail for me in the in the mailroom. Um, but she, um, uh, you know, Trump always attacks her in, in the most vicious and horrible ways. Yeah. Um, but and I don't know. I've never asked Maggie who her sources are or anything like this. But um, but but there are there have been many moments that people. Uh, 
senior people in the in the Trump White House were were convinced that the only reason why the only way Maggie could have gotten X, Y, or Z is because the president called her up. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. I, I've never asked her. It's not my thing to ask. Yeah. Well, she clearly got great sources. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's just a, so you know such an. I mean, he. This world is his world. The media leaks. Uh, you know, it's he thrives on it. Yeah, he does, and 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 he brings he he also just just brings reporters into the Oval Office. He actually really cares. I mean, you you, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but I I mean, Barack Obama wouldn't care what the cable television chatter in the middle of the day was about X, Y, or Z. Would he? Would he watch? Would he uh, no. know about it? I mean, all, he... all presidents deny any interest, and most presidents have some. But he doesn't watch. He didn't watch. That's for sure. Yeah. He, he, you know, he wasn't watching TV all day, uh, but, uh, but Trump really cares, really watches this stuff. I mean, yeah. he, and, he, and he has it on his DVR. Yeah, I, I, I tell this story in the book about um, uh, January eighteenth, twenty seventeen, two days before his uh, his his inauguration. I mean, you'd think this would be a really high stakes moment for him. I mean. His cabinet's still not in place. The speech isn't done yet. I mean, all, all, all that he's got to do. And um, I did a goofy. I, I had a brief thing with George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America that morning about the uh, about Bush forty one, and now he, he he'd just gone into the hospital again. And and at the end of it, I reminded uh, George that they weren't going to be coming to the inauguration anyway. Um, and uh, and besides, George W. George H. W. Bush wasn't wasn't exactly a fan. He had thrown his shoes at the television set every time Trump came on during the primaries, and it was just a little thing, and it was done. And uh, a f- about two or three hours later, I got a phone call, and it was Donald Trump, and getting George on the phone too. So Trump had George and I on the phone. And wanted to know, well, you know, you're saying he hates me. Well, do you know, do you know about the letter he sent me? Do you know about the wonderful letter he sent me? And of course, we don't, how would we know? And, um, but I, and he ended up giving me this letter that, that, that classic 41 letter wishing him luck. America's rooting for him. We won't be able to be there, but, but we, we, we wish you all the best. And I was just astounded that A, the guy had time to watch Good Morning America. Um, and B that he that he spends he spent like ten minutes on the phone with us. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know he he clearly cares and pays close attention to what's said about him because he reacts to it really quickly. And it also seems clear that Maggie uh, may be one example. But you know, you guys, uh, he likes to flay you guys for public purposes, but he also uh, wants to have a relationship for his own purposes. So he's playing an inside and an outside game here we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the axe files and now back to the show I just a couple more biographical things, and then I want to talk uh, uh, about Trump. You made the switch to broadcast journalism. You went to CNN. Um, what what caused you to 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 give up print and take up broadcast? It was a total accident. Uh, CNN decided in going into the nineteen ninety six campaign, they wanted to have a Generation X team to, to cover the election from the perspective of young voters because we used to be young back then. <laughs> and um, and uh, they they actually first um, reached out to my, my old uh, generational revolutionary, Douglas Kennedy. Um, and Douglas uh, suggested that they talk to me. And I went into interview for this. And to my surprise, like in a very haphazard CNN way, they just hired me. I mean, it was like, it, it was, there, there were, I, you know, I had done television appearances like the mm-hmm. one where I got everything wrong in 1994 as yes. a, as a political reporter in New York. Name, yes, yeah. yeah, right. Um, but I had never done television reporting at all. And um, they hired me and two weeks later had me, uh, my first day on the job was in Iowa for the Iowa caucuses. I mean, I never even started I, I never even saw the inside of a CNN bureau uh, as an employee until 
I mean, God, a, a long time later, I was on the road covering the campaign. Interestingly, um, and it was a one-year contract. When I told my mom the news, um, and and my stepfather, they were they were they were they were happy, but they said, but my they said, look, you better keep writing too. It's fine to do this television <laughs> stuff, but you got to keep writing. Um, and um, which I think was good advice, actually, very good advice. But uh, the, the Generation X team included. Uh, me as the reporter, a liberal analyst named Farai Judea, who you may yeah, know. Yeah, sure, I know yeah. Farai, yeah. Um, and a conservative analyst named Kellyanne Fitzpatrick, uh-huh. who later got married to a guy named George Conway. Yes. So <laughs> that was the uh, that was the 1996 Gen X team for uh, CNN. Well, I, I don't want to blow up your sources, but um, where is Kellyanne? That's another question. I asked where Rudy is. She seems awfully quiet these days. Why? Uh, you know, um, she's. It, it's hard to. It's hard to figure. She disappears for long periods of time, and then will appear, and uh, and and be out there a lot. Um, she is ultimate. She's the ultimate survivor in that White House, um, and I think that. I think the way that she survives is she keeps her head down for long periods of time, and then when Trump really needs somebody to go out there and willing to say anything to defend him, she. She raises her hand. Um, I it's a mystery to me. I'll be candid. I mean, I often ask people what what does Kellyanne do? I mean, like people with serious jobs in the West Wing, and um, I don't really get a consistent answer to that question. But but she but she defends him, and she goes out there and fiercely and f- fiercely, and and I think that by not doing it constantly, uh, in terms of in his eyes has more impact. You know, he, he doesn't get weary of it. Uh, uh-huh. And, uh, and, and, and she doesn't feel like she's trying to upstage him or get too much attention and so on. And she'll often do it when nobody else is willing to do it. So you at CNN, you covered the 2000 presidential campaign. You were on the Straight Talk Express with John McCain. Hmm. Uh, and uh, you've, you've, I know you've, you've spoken uh, uh, of that experience as kind of the I mean, that was an unusual experience where the candidate just invited the press on and the media on and and you guys were in constant contact with him. You were sitting on a bus with him for days, days on end and you got to know him pretty well. It was uh, it was the most fun I've ever had covering any any story. Um, Actually, you know, now given I, I haven't thought about it this way, but. I guess there were some similarities to Mar- to Mario Cuomo uh, because because um, I, I I I do remember driving around New York, uh, you know, with sitting in the back seat with 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 Mario Cuomo and, uh, yeah. and a similar kind. Of, but 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 this was this was more intense because this was, um, you know, he he, he had that that bus. He spent all day every day on that bus and the entire day he was surrounded by reporters. There were, you know, maybe, you know, maybe like, uh, eight to 10 of us that could, that, that could squeeze into the back around him. And, and I, you know, I was one of those that was on almost, you know, almost constantly. Um, and he was always on the record and he, I mean, I, you, you can imagine that, that I remember seeing, uh, Rick Davis, his campaign manager, and and John Weaver, his uh, his his pol- political director or whatever his title was, sometimes you know he, he would ride the bus, he'd get off, he'd do his town hall, and then he would get back on the bus. And sometimes I would see Davis and and Weaver actually waiting to talk to him as he was getting on the bus, because then he was going to be you know right. back with us. <laughs> now Mike yeah. Murphy was always with him in the back, so he did have one aide with him in the back, but Mike Murphy was really more of like his sidekick, you know, his yeah. kind of like uh Well, look, part of the conceit of that campaign was that he was completely un unvarnished and was kind of telling it like it is and it was really from a press standpoint that's that's great. Years later you confronted uh, in, and you write about this in your book, you but you confronted President Trump in the Oval Office when John McCain passed away trying to get some comment from him. Of course, Trump famously had uh, attacked McCain as not being a genuine hero and and so on. Um, What was going through your head at that time? Were you offended by the fact that he hadn't commented on McCain's death? I actually was. And I know we shouldn't like, you know, as a reporter, it's not really my job to be offended. But but this, 
I, I, I had really, you know, they used to say of McCain after that 2000 campaign uh, that his base was the press. Yeah, <laughs> right. Know? And and look, I, I I stand by my reporting. Then I did reporting that irritated him and pissed him off, and you know, and I I don't I don't think I was puffing him up, but I I really admired the guy, and yeah. um and and hey, I ran a campaign at, against him, and I did too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. And, um, you know, so, so, and, and I, you know, and I, obviously his whole story is five and a half years and as, as a POW and, um, his, his amazing, his tremendous service to this country. So the idea that the president of the United States wasn't going to say a damn thing about the passing of an American legend and an American hero, um, and he hadn't even put the, put the flag down at the White House. Yeah. Uh, and I... It was a busy day at the White House. I happened to be the pool reporter, which meant I was the sole network reporter that was at this series of events. There were a couple of events in the Oval Office. There was an event in the cabinet room. There was, uh, there was something in, in, in the Rose Garden. So I was there for all of these things. And in every single one of them, I said, any comment about John McCain? Do you think John McCain was a hero? What are your thoughts on John McCain? And then by by the last couple of events, the American Legion was in, was in on the act, and they they gave they the head of the American Legion wrote a letter, you know, urging the president to to lower the flags uh, for for John McCain, yeah. saying this is a, an American hero. So then I was like, "Will you lower the flags?" And he and he, you can look at the the video, and it it was ten different times I asked a variation of it, and he had he you know he had the arms crossed and he scowled and he wouldn't even look at me as I was asking this. So finally, I was like, I think my last question was, why? Why won't you say anything about John McCain? Now, eventually, the flags came down, but he never, he, he never, never responded. Never said anything. So I, I'm going to compress very, without uh, comment, you, you have a long and distinguished career as a national security reporter, as a congressional reporter, uh, you covered wars. But I want to get to Trump in these final uh, in these final minutes because you have uh, such good insights in him, and you know the, the the sort of chaos that reigns around him is is well depicted in your book. But I wanted to ask about a couple of specific things. One is Vladimir Putin, and this strange aversion of Trump's to say anything negative about him. Where you, you, you must have been in Helsinki. So, what what is it about? Trump and Putin, you know, in this report that came out this week from the Intel Committee, there was an Axios printed a letter from Trump to Putin in 2007 telling Putin that he was a big fan. He literally wrote a fan letter to Vladimir Putin. I mean, it, 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 is, it, is, it, is, it is literally a fan letter. Yeah. What, what is up there? Nancy Pelosi was a guest here on a podcast I, I put up the other day, and she said, all roads lead to Putin, and when when we see President Trump's tax returns at whatever time that is, we will know why. Hinting yeah. de- deeply that he was he's he had financial ties that that helped dictate that. But you know, it is it is striking that he never challenges Putin, and you got to ask why. I ask you on a day, by the way, after Putin apparently poisoned another of his political enemies. Yeah, it's um, and uh, you know this following uh, the 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 killing of Boris Nemtsov, who is somebody yes. that I that I interviewed in 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 Moscow many many years ago. Yeah, heroic, um, another heroic guy. Um, I, I the honest answer is I don't know, but it is it is strange. It is consistent. Um, I you know Helsinki has rightfully been seen as kind of a marker of this presidency, particularly in terms of the Russia relationship. But he said virtually the same thing earlier. Uh, I remember his first trip to Asia. We were at a you know, joint press conference in, uh, in Vietnam. And he had, he had basically said the same thing that, you know, well, if he, he says he didn't, did, didn't do it, I believe him. Um, you know, the intelligence community had given its findings. He was taking the side of you Russia know, Vladimir Putin yeah. over, over his own intelligence community. Um, so it's been consistent throughout. Um, you know, he. Uh, it, it is true um, that that his administration has taken steps that that, that often are, forced that are, by uh, their hands, forced by Congress. True, true, true. Um, what? what but, but it's but it's strange. He lashes out on 
at, 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 at everybody over almost anything, but he's, he, he never gets, he never lashes out at Russia. Never, never says, it. I mean, it, it's odd. I don't know. You, you were, you're the just past president of the White House Correspondent Association. What, what, and his relationship with the media is obviously volcanic. Uh, I think he called you recently a third-rate reporter when you asked him a question he didn't like. But he's brutal on the press, and he uses you guys, and you write about this as uh, props in his political uh, at his political events in ways that actually sound dangerous. Um, what has he What has he done to the the uh, the relationship between the media and the public? What are the consequences of Donald Trump's making the media of the focus the focus of his ire? I think it's I think it's corrosive, and I think it's been deeply damaging, and 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 I I hope it can be undone. But I think it will take. I think I think that I think that, that the impact will be felt beyond beyond the Trump era, uh, long after he is gone. I mean, he has um, he has used the the most powerful bully pulpit. Uh, in, in, in the world to, on a day-by-day basis, undermine faith in a free press and to convince people that they shouldn't believe anything they see uh, in, in a newspaper or on a television newscast. And um, I, I, I think it's in, incredibly damaging. As you point out, it's not, you know, he, he, he does it publicly and then he courts the press, uh, you know, behind the scenes. Um, I, I had a meeting with him um, uh, almost a year ago, uh, in the Oval Office, where I I said to him, and this was this was not long after the shootings in El Paso and Dayton, and I I said I you know you're when, when you when you label the press the enemy of the people, uh, aren't you worried that you know some unstable person is going to take your words to heart? Um, this this could be really dangerous. This is after the the bomb the the, the bombs that were sent to uh, to CNN the letter bombs. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and his answer was chilling. He, he said to me, um, well, I hope they do. I hope people do take it to heart because I really believe it. I, I believe that the fake news is the enemy of the people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was like it didn't, it didn't register. I don't think he meant that he literally wanted – I mean it, it, he didn't mean he wanted somebody to literally go out and do violence. But, but it, he didn't – he couldn't comprehend the idea that his words have – could have deadly consequences. But it's yeah. not just that. I just worry that – that, that we are in a point in our country where, you know, people have a different set of facts and there's not an, a, a basic understanding about what is true and what is not true. And that's yeah. dangerous because you can't, you can't overcome divisions if that's... Well, we could be headed to a, a real crisis in this election because he's signaled, and you've covered this, that, you know, either he wins or, or the election will have been stolen. And we will have states where uh, votes are going to be counted past election day. Um, do you, what do you foresee for the fall? I mean, the question I get all the time is, will he leave? I mean, which seems like... So I asked a, um, former, very senior official in that administration about that. Will he leave? And the answer was, was pretty interesting. He said, look, we have, we have people, meaning the U S government who will escort him out. It'll be fine. And then he added, he could chain himself to the Resolute desk and they will go and clip chains and show him the door. So that's rather vivid imagery. Uh, I don't think that he, I think that he will make us wonder what he will do. I think that uh, he'll make a lot of noise. He'll play the victim if he loses. He'll say it was rigged. But I think ultimately, you know, he's not going to he's not going to provoke a crisis and use it probably as a kickoff to his next uh, project. Yeah. Some media as a media platform. Look, look, Barack Obama said in his convention speech that he has viewed the White House as, as, as another reality show, which is kind of a theme of the book. I mean, he yes. I don't think that he I don't think he wants to be a dictator. Uh, I think he might want to play a dictator on television, but. I don't think he particularly wants all the responsibility that would that would come with ultimate authority. Um, I think he flirts with that from time to time, but ultimately, you know, it's 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 the show. So this is going to be a great wild season ender if he loses, and he'll play it for everything it's worth. 
but I, I don't think that he wants to, you know, he's not, the, I, I don't, I, my feel having known the guy and covered the guy, this is not the kind of person that's going to provoke a constitutional crisis by refusing uh, uh, to leave if he loses. I don't think so. That's my read as well. I just think he's going to make it as unpleasant as possible, which is going to, cre- just as you cre- he creates credibility problems for the media, he's creating credibility problems for democracy, which, yes. is, a, uh, which is a concern, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, that should be a source of concern. But th- this book, The uh, Front Row at the Trump Show, really does give you some insight into the show, in, into how he approaches the presidency. Um, it's a it's a great read. So I hope Thank everybody uh, everybody grabs it. And I look forward. I guess I won't see you on the trail because there <laughs> will be no trail. But uh, I look forward to uh, catching up down the line and uh, and listening to your coverage of what promises to be an incredibly interesting uh, couple of months here. Yeah, no doubt. Well, it's it's great it's great to talk to you. And uh, you know, I've 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 been a, a admirer for a long time. And uh, and and. You're you're one of the smartest uh, smartest analysts of all this stuff. So uh, and uh, I, 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 so, appreciate so I, I appreciate talking to you. It's great all right, to talk to you. Jonathan Carl, good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.